Hey guys, I'd like to uh, also give a nice little shout out. Make sure you guys go check out my good friends at Last Call Nation. Uh, Last Call Nation's a great merchandise brand and lifestyle brand that just promotes living the good life and also just living life to the fullest. Uh, Make sure you go visit them at lastcallnation.com. Also follow them on Instagram at lastcallnation and check them out on Facebook as well. Make sure you like their page and make sure you purchase some of that merch. Some pretty cool cool stuff on there too. Uh, I uh, just ordered one of my shirts, so I should be getting that soon. And uh, yeah, I'll definitely be uh, plugging them every single time, guys, because like I said, amazing merch. Uh, Also remember to make sure you share their page with your friends so that, you know, they can also live life to the fullest. And just remember, life is too short. So grab every good time you can because you never know when it's going to be your last call. Tokers, oh, this is going to be a good episode, my first true crime episode, which I fucking love true crime, so this is fucking great for me, I, I love uh, I, I love studying up, uh, studying up on all these crime guys, I love, uh, you know, just seeing how their minds work, uh, from, you know, drug lords, serial killers, con artists you know I've, I've i've delved into all that and it's it's super super fucking interesting stuff uh if you're into it uh i can definitely link you up with some some good websites and some good uh podcasts and youtube pages to to follow up on and uh yeah i mean it's uh it's just a a good mind bending uh experience to learn how these fucking people operate. But uh let's let's get into this episode today. Uh now this episode might get a little uh it might get a little interesting. <laughs> or I might rant more than usual because I took a small dosage of uh the old magic mushrooms about 30 45 minutes ago. So uh you've been warned <laughs> if I if I start just rambling, that's probably the reason. Because mushrooms, you know, in small doses do that to me. They definitely make me ramble more, make me a little more giggly. So you'll probably hear some more <laughs> some more giggling in this one, more than likely. But uh, not a lot of giggling, because a lot of shit in this guy's life wasn't funny. So not too much giggling. But uh, definitely some unnecessary giggling will probably happen. 
let's jump into it, man. Let's just jump into it. Uh, who remembers Scarface? The the movie Scarface, not the rapper. Um, if you remember Scarface, then I'm sure you know you you either hated it or loved it. It's there's no in between with that movie. People either hate it or love it. They they uh, they kind of give people or give the movie a lot of shit because Al Pacino played a Cuban. <laughs> but uh, according to some people, he did a good job. And you know, I thought I fucking loved the movie. It was entertaining as fuck. Um, and you know, it's got Al Pacino, and he's a legend. So fuck y'all for thinking that it sucks. <laughs> that goes to you, John Mulaney. How dare you talk shit about a classic? Um, it's mostly known for the you know, the 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 wild accent that Pacino had, and then the uh, ending death scene of Al Pacino's character. Where he goes out in a blaze of motherfucking glory, which uh, not a way I'd recommend you go out, but uh, <laughs> he did. And if you're a gangster, that's probably how you want to go out. So he went out the right way. Um, well, I mean, a lot of you don't know this, but you know, some of that movie was based on you know real people, and one of those people is who we're going to talk about today. The King of Cocaine, Mr. Roberto Suarez Gomez. But he mostly just went by Roberto Suarez. Now, uh, not a lot known about Suarez. A lot of people don't really talk about him. There's not a lot. I I didn't really even find any movies, like, specifically about him. You know, there's movies that reference him. There's movies that, like, talk about him a little bit. But... Not much is known about him. Um, if you remember the scene in Scarface when uh, when uh, Scarface was made to watch his boss, you know, dangle from that helicopter and get killed, the guy that Pacino's talking to that ordered the hit is supposed to be it's supposed to be Roberto Suarez. That's who the character is based on. So uh, you know who who was this? infamous guy you know because there's not a lot known about him you know I, I had to you know dig deep uh and find information about this guy because like I said there's not movies there's not like biographies he's not like Pablo Escobar and talked about all the time and everyone knows Escobar's name like that dude's well known not like this guy even though this guy was a bad motherfucker hence his name the king of cocaine uh, and, you know, I also learned that there's a lot more to the cocaine game besides Pablo, the Nicaraguans, and the Mexican cartels. And uh, this Bolivian boss man is uh, is going to enlighten you guys as well that uh, he, was, he was one of the true bosses of bosses, and he was fucking killing the game, moving metric tons of just massive amounts of cocaine uh uh so just you know let's jump into it um you know he was a bolivian drug lord as i just said uh and a trafficker but he also had you know a lot of political ties he was big in the political world and he also ha he played the one of the major roles in the expansion of 
uh, cocaine trafficking in Bolivia. He was one of the main guys that really put it on the map. Uh, at his prime, Suarez was, uh, he made uh, $500 million annually. And uh, that was back in the 70s. So to put that in you know, today's money so that you guys can understand how baller this motherfucker was, uh, annually he made two two billion four hundred fifteen million five hundred ninety four thousand and seven hundred ninety five dollars. Uh, yeah, that's about six. It's a little over six point five million dollars a day. Whew, just, just saying that just makes me just wish I robbed this nigga. <laughs> Damn, that is a lot of fucking money. Man, what I would do for six and a half million dollars a day. Woo, that's a lot of money. A lot of money. It's so much money that you, they have a hard time dealing with it. Uh, a lot of people know that uh, a lot of the cartels, it was very well known. They lost a shit ton of money in storage like millions and millions of dollars was eaten by rats or destroyed by some other element while in storage or you know in transport that shit happened a lot and when you're dealing with a lot of fucking cash you know back in those days it wasn't fucking you know credit cards and shit like that and bitcoin and all this shit this was a cash business only. There was no fucking other thing but cash. And I mean, still to this day, it's mainly a cash business. But now you got Bitcoin. And, and Bitcoin has changed the dope game. But back in those days, it was all cash. So you're talking about dealing with 65 or $6.5 million in cash a day. That shit's stressful. It can get stressful. But then again, it's not too stressful when you're making six and a half million dollars uh, or six point five million dollars a day. So, I mean, uh, I guess the stress kind of evens itself out. <laughs> uh, you know, he he was one of the major suppliers of the Medellin cartel, which is, you know, Pablo's cartel. And uh, he was considered the uh, biggest cocaine producer in the world at at his prime. So the dude was, he was no joke. The dude was moving weight. And you guys didn't even know about him. Uh, but let's start from the beginning of his life. And we'll, we'll slowly go through his little timeline and discuss his, uh, his rise, his, uh, you know, the prime of his, his domination and his fall which is usually how you talk about drug lords. It's usually never a, a rise and then he died happily at home. It's usually a rise, a peak, and then the demise or the arrest of said drug lord. So, you know, let's start with, you know, R R Roberto Suarez. He uh, He's not like a lot of these drug lords that you see that either come from, you know, Improver impoverished uh, communities or, you know, hard times where they saw a lot of dope being moved, so they just kind of gravitated towards that life. He didn't live that life at all. He uh, he grew up uh, wealthy. 
you know, he, he was born in uh, January 8th, 1932, to a very wealthy cattle ranching family uh, in the tropical uh, Bene department of Bolivia. Um, his parents were uh, Nicomedes, uh, which is basically cattle king, uh, and uh, Suarez Franco and Blanca Gomez Roca were his parents. Uh, Suarez also was a descendant of the Suarez brothers, which were rubber barons that were basically famous for expanding the rubber trade worldwide and expanding westernization into the Bolivian northern Amazon. So his family was fucking loaded. Like, they had a lot of fucking ties. And they also, you know, single-handedly financed Colmena Colmena Porvenia during the Acre War War of Brazil, which basically was uh, a battle of, you know, land with Brazil and Bolivia. So these guys were tied with the government. They were tied, you know, with the the expansion of basically wealth in Bolivia. So they had a lot of big time ties that uh, that really helped this family gain prominence and prestige throughout Bolivia. So you know, Suarez came up. He came up with a lot of money and he came up living the good life in Bolivia. He didn't. He never struggled. He never had a hard time, you know. He never, uh, he never wanted much, because he had everything he pretty much wanted. You know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a battle to get things for him, cause he was fucking loaded, and his family had all the pull and ties. So, along with being loaded, they they also had influence. So, he he was good. He came up really nice. Came up better than most drug lords. Um. But, you know, sometimes that life isn't appealing and you want to do some dirty shit, <laughs> um, which happens quite frequently, actually. Like a lot of rich kids that have it all for some reason want to do the dope game shit, which is fucking stupid because the dope game ain't where it's at. Trust me. <laughs> It's a motherfucking, it's great profit margins, great grind, yeah, but the stress and the consequences just, they don't, they don't usually equate unless you're like big time, like this guy just doesn't, doesn't equate. <laughs> um, and a, a lot isn't, you know, known about his, his twenties, um, just because, you know, it wasn't really written about. And he didn't really meet his wife until, like, his late 20s, early 30s. So a lot isn't really known about that part of his life. She didn't really write about it much. Um, But that's the main thing in that time period of his 20s and 30s is that he he met his wife, uh, Ada Levy. And she was the one that also wrote his... uh, his biography. Um, you know, he he wasn't he wasn't known to be involved in the drug game back in those days, back in the uh, you know fifties and sixties. But a lot of people, you know, think that that time that he wasn't like supposedly involved, he was actually just building contacts, learning the drug trade, uh, 
mastering techniques and, you know, just becoming good and learning how to be good at producing and trafficking cocaine so that when he did, like, jump into the game, he was already, you know, pretty fucking wise to it. Which is uh, probably a smart idea when you're getting into the dope game, the way he got into it. Um, So we're going to fast forward into the 70s just because, like I said, not a lot of information was known in the 50s and 60s. So, you know, no reason to talk about it and you know, dwell on that shit. But, uh, yeah, let's let's fast forward into the 70s when shit starts to get real for Mr. Suarez. Uh, he entered into the, dr- uh, the cocaine trade in the early 70s. Um, and uh, he started kind of small time, but then he moved into the big time when he started conducting business with uh, good old Pablo Escobar. That's right. Him and Pablo were very good friends, uh, business partners for a long time. Uh, that helped him really gain his his prominence because of how, you know, how much Pablo was moving and fucking pushing into the States and everywhere else. He needed a lot of dope. And Suarez was like, shit, I can help that. So that it was a it was a beautiful partnership for him. Uh, and then Suarez later recruited a shit ton of Bolivian uh, coca producers. And that really helped him expand his business to the point to where he had to actually form an organization or company dubbed La Corporación or the corporation. Um, Suarez, he fucking, this was a, an official business. Uh, he had a fleet of aircrafts. Uh, he had, you know, a Cessna 206. He had a Douglas D3, uh, DC3. Um, and, you know, he used those things to fly cocaine uh, shipments from Bolivia, Amazon to Colombia. And it worked like a charm, you know. Having your own fleet kind of helps when you're trying to ship and or transport a shit ton of fucking dope. You don't have to go through, you know, customs and all that other bullshit of, you know, using somebody else's plane. So this was a huge advantage for him, and it's what blew his his organization all the way up and made him the man. Uh, let's talk about La Corporación. The Corporation. Uh... They were also known as the Santa Ana Cartel. Um, they were mainly known as the La, La Corporación in Bolivia to kind of give them that sense of, you know, legitimacy. No one's going to think of, you know, you're illegitimate if you're just called the corporation. They just think you're an organization of prominent individuals at that point. But if, you know, you call yourself the Santa Ana Cartel, then you're a cartel. And people don't really like cartels too much. So... La Corporación was what they uh, went by. And, you know, it came to prominence in the early 70s, but it really picked up momentum into the mid-70s and late 70s and really took over control of the the cocaine trade in Bolivia. This is when he just blew up. He just took off Uh, because mainly he, he, he just cornered the market. He got all the cocoa producers to get on his side 
So there's really no competition if all the people producing the cocaine in your country work for your, you know, your organization or cartel. Very easy to control everything. Um, he then, after getting all the cocoa farmers, you know, in check, he did another thing. He took all the fucking drug traffickers and the transnational criminals and he said, all right, I need you motherfuckers to be a little more organized, a little less crazy, and let's get this shit together. And they joined La Corporación, expanding its power, because now he had all these fucking criminals a part of his organization. And I'm talking about he had some some top dogs. Uh, so much that, you know, after the uh, 1980, you know, the coup, the uh, the coup that basically took over the Bolivian government and you know made it pretty much a dictatorship. Uh, the corporation, La Corporación, uh, received political protection from the Bolivian military dictatorship. So now he has military backing him basically because he helped you know take over, and that basically immediately turned Bolivia into an official narco state. And it actually was the first, uh, it was the first distinct uh, distinction to get that, or the first country to get that distinction of narco state. And basically a narco state is just a country uh, that uh, all its legitimate institutions pretty much are either influenced or financed by the power and wealth of the illegal drug trade. You know, you see that in, you know, some of the the smaller states in Mex- Mexico right now, Sinaloa being one of the major ones that you uh, I'm sure know about. You know, that's considered a narco state because the uh the cartels literally control that that uh area. So that's basically what narco state means and Bolivia was that the uh the the corporation controlled bolivia essentially um and it then effectively also made you know bolivia one of the largest cocaine producers in the world just like that boom uh and it it, it you know it helped the country a little bit but at the end of the day hurt it way more it helped it financially a little bit but fucked them every other way and it it backfired. Trust me. Um, they uh, the corporation also took it a step further and then allied themselves with several Mexican and Colombian drug cartels. So these guys had power all over. They had connections all over. They were they were super. They just had influence everywhere. And Mexico and Colombia being allies are having allies there helped a shit ton because those were the two main traffickers excuse me the two main traffickers into the states so like having those two guys with you is going to seriously increase your your uh, revenue stream a lot and it it showed as I said the fucking 6.5 million dollars a day that that motherfucker was making God, I wish I could rob him. Fuck. Oh, excuse me. Um, I don't rob people. Don't don't 
don't think I rob people, guys. I just want to rob that guy specifically because that's a lot of money and he's a drug lord. So fuck, you know what I mean? It's not a bad thing to rob a drug lord, right? <laughs> At least I, I think so. <laughs> but then again, it's probably a bad thing because you'd probably die if you robbed a drug lord. So yeah, not a good idea. <laughs> um, because of this also, it, it gave... Like I said, Suarez, a shit ton of political power and influence. And he used it accordingly to help him just push all the dope, all the dope in the world. And it also helped him with, you know, government property, uh, access to government property and assistance from said government in a lot of these operations that the government shouldn't be helping anybody with. <laughs> But they helped him a lot. Um, yeah. It was really fucked up. <laughs> yeah, it still happens today in a lot of narco states, but you don't see it as this bad as a whole country is just completely engulfed in it. Um, so that was pretty much the 70s, him just gaining all that power, gaining all that influence, gaining all those allies, and just gathering them all together and just building the corporation up to be this super fucking cocaine trafficking superpower. And that's what they became. Uh, and then in uh, on July 17, 1980, uh, a, a, the coup, basically, um, which is dubbed the cocaine coup or uh, the coup of 1980, the uh, overthrew President Lydia uh, Tejada, and she was replaced by her crazy, sh crooked, just corrupt-ass psycho cousin, Luis Garcia Mesa Tejada. Um, yeah, that guy was fucking nuts. Uh, just reading up a little bit on him, dude was a, a psycho that killed a lot of fucking Bolivians. Like, if you opposed him, you're dead. You, you shut the fuck up. Um, but they call it the cocaine coup because mainly it was backed. <laughs> it was, it was all backed by the, the criminals and the drug traffickers, mainly, you know, Suarez and his corporation. They were the main guys in Bolivia. So they were the main financiers. Um, shortly after that coup, the drug traffickers received political protection and cocaine production dramatically increased in Bolivia. So, like, he grew his organization in the 70s and then grew the production in the 80s. And that's when money just fucking flooded into Bolivia uh, from all this narco state funding. And... You know, it provided a good couple of years of domination for the corporation and uh, and for the new prez, that, that piece of shit guy, uh, what's his name, Luis, Luis Tejada, he's that psycho. He didn't, re he wasn't president long, don't worry. He was only president for like a year and a half. Uh, yeah, psychos usually don't make it that long as presidents and he was definitely a psycho, like certified psycho. I don't have to be a fucking psychologist to know that dude is a psycho. Um, uh, another little key thing here. A lot of people think that the CIA helped the corporation. Uh, 
mainly a lot of people think that because of their they're just their crazy fast and fruitful expansion into the cocaine world. And, you know, as you know, the CIA has financed and backed a lot of illegal operations and corrupt regimes uh, and narco states. So, I mean, that's not unbelievable in any way that the CIA would help them if in some way the corporation could help them in return. And that's that's how the CIA works. It's like, yeah, we'll let you operate, but what you got for us? You know, like, you got any information? You got some, you got some money? <laughs> you got something? You gotta give us something, and we'll let you do some shit. But you gotta help us. Scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. Is how the CIA works. Or sometimes, you know, scratch my back, we'll stab you in the back. That's the other way how they work. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I definitely think because of how they just took over the cocaine world, they probably got some help from the 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 old CIA boys that was very active in the dope game back in those days. Um, you know, just you know, just like Pablo Suarez, of course, was the smart guy, and he was the ultimate philanthropist. Uh, he was really smart about that. And he gave back a lot. He gained a lot of popularity by, uh, you know, building churches, hospitals, streets in rural villages, soccer fields, baseball fields, fucking uh, homes all over the fucking place. The dude was just a philanthropist of epic proportions. So the people loved him. And, you know, in, in his uh, in his hometown province, uh, Bene, or Bene or Benny, I actually don't know how it's spelled or said it's b e n i no accents or anything so i'm gonna guess benny or ben i or benai anyways <laughs> uh suarez was uh so popular that he was dubbed robin hood and uh his his robin hood image actually gained him a shit ton of popularity amongst um, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, excuse me. And they fucking loved him. I'm assuming they just didn't know about the dope shit that he was doing. They knew. (laughs) The church knew. The church is like, God forgives. We know you're a sinner, but you gave to us, so God bless you. (laughs) Uh, so yeah, if you guys ever, you know, if you, you do some crimes, just donate some money to the church. <laughs> You're good. <laughs> uh, yeah, cause money makes God forgive you really quick. Um, <laughs> now, now before I get into the nitty gritty of this guy's, you know, drug empire and his reign of, uh, the cocaine trafficking world. I want to talk about some of the you know notable names that are tied to him. Uh, one of the the ones that really stuck out to me, um, and most to most people when they do read about him, is uh, his ties to the old notable Nazi war criminal Klaus Altman, uh, better known as Klaus Barbie. Um, uh, Klaus was a, a savage. He was a fucking savage. So much that he was given the nickname the Butcher of Lyon. Uh, 
they gave him that name basically because he didn't like order people to kill people. He personally like loved to torture people and loved to kill people and loved to experiment and try new things on people. Well, let me not say people on Jewish prisoners. Uh, he like the stories about him. He relished on doing it. He really enjoyed like just doing all these new crazy tactics and uh, he's considered one of the most savage motherfuckers from uh, the Holocaust. So, I mean, this guy was a fucking psycho. And, you know, he was a prominent member of the Nazi Gestapo. And he ended up escaping to South America once the Nazis were defeated. Uh, once, once he got to South America, he engulfed himself into the criminal underworld, which, of course, is where he probably fit in. So... That was probably a good idea by him. You know, get in where you fit in, piece of shit. <laughs> uh, and specifically, he really engulfed himself into the narco-trafficking world. Um, you know, he started out working with a lot of the cartels, Mexico, Colombia. He just, you know, wherever he could get work, he'd get the work, he'd do the work, and he was a savage at doing his work. And uh, he gained a really popular reputation, so much that it grabbed Suarez's attention. And uh, soon after that, Suarez had him working for him. And then, soon after that, Suarez said, you know what? You a bad motherfucker. Suarez then made him uh, his head of security. So yeah, like, you had this Nazi war criminal that was your head of security. And I, I don't even know, I don't I don't know if he, it never really said if he knew if he was a Nazi war criminal, but I'm going to say he probably did because those guys were kind of, you know, known by most, and I'd imagine they'd be known by a guy that's as smart and, you know, informed as Suarez. Ooh, mushroom yawns. <laughs> Um, but, uh, under Klaus, uh, Suarez got a lot of the Nazi tactics put into a security regime and, uh, that, you know, helped Klaus, you know, just grow into the corporation and he really made the corporation a powerful force to be reckoned with in the narco world because of his psychotic fucking tactics and, his security measures that he would, you know, impl uh, implore on everyone. The guy was very well known to be, you know, an asshole, a savage, but also very well known to be very good at his job. So the corporation got a lot of respect because they had that savage psycho working for him. And um, he was good at his job. His job was to be an enforcer of security, and he definitely did that. Very evil-like, and that was his way. So he, I'm sure, enjoyed his time with the corporation a lot. He got to continue his torture and murders. Son of a bitch. Uh, <laughs> another notable name that came up was Oliver Bitch-Ass North. <laughs> I'm sure some of you 
uh, know him. And if you do know him, I'm sure you remember him from the famous Iron Contra, uh, Iron, Iran Contra scandal. Um, but according to Suarez and his wife, Oliver used uh, the corporation and the Colombian cartel's funds to fund his own operations and also to peddle cocaine into the states. So, I mean, I honestly believe that shit. I believe every part of their story, honestly, because <laughs> uh, I think Oliver North is one of the, the big reasons for the drug war uh, taking such a big major loss in the public view, but huge financial gains because of the operations needed to combat the war. So, you know, he was the worst kind of just two-headed fucking grass snake that bites your fucking foot. And, you know, in my opinion, the the ultimate just piece of shit double agent asshole that just perpetuated a, a, a drug war that should have ended decades ago. And he just made it fucking worse. Oh, God, what an asshole. But, you know, fuck that guy. Nothing ever happened to him, by the way. So, just shows become involved with the government and you can get away with a lot. <sighs> Fucked up, I know. Ah, oof. Oh, Jesus. It tastes almost like, tastes like a, like a sour cherry almost. Mm. I don't I forgot what flavor that was. It was nice. Um <laughs> also talked about was uh the uh a little bit was talked about was uh, the the Italian mafia. Um in his biography his wife talks about him meeting with high-ranking members of the mafia in Bolivia and on their travels, you know, under the guise of real estate or import export business. But, you know, now she believes that Suarez was one of the main suppliers of the Italian mafia in the States and as well as the uh, the original Italian mafia in Italy. A lot of you don't know those are like they're two separate entities. Basically, the American Italian mafia is they, they follow the same code, basically, but they're different groups. They operate a lot differently. Trust me. The Italian mafia in Italy is way more gangster than the American ones. <laughs> way more gangster. Um, he uh, he also has you know a lot of close ties and was thought to be the main supplier to uh, the Cuban revolutionary uh, Carlos Ochaya, and the uh, you know everyone knows oh the old Panamanian leader. Oh, Nor Noriega. Uh, yeah, this, it's thought that he was their guy. So the guy was tied to a lot of motherfucking, you know, big names in the game. And uh, that's why, you know, he had that influence that he had. Because, you know, being tied to those names, probably going to help you a little bit when, you know, you're dealing with other people in the, the drug world 
You just name drop. No, nigga, I supplied Noriega, supplied Italian Mafia, Oliver North. Nigga, shit, check my resume. <laughs> so dude was moving some dope, real dope. <laughs> um, so let, let's let's talk about his empire. Let's talk about the the, the criminal empire that he built and its unfortunate demise. But also, it's more than likely destined demise. Because that's what happens to these things. That's what happens to these drug lords. Like I said, most of them fall. You don't really hear a lot about this drug lord that got out the game and became a Fortune 500 guy. Usually not going to happen. Uh, it's just not a part of their their mindset, unfortunately. Um, you know, as I said, he started his empire in the 70s. But... As I also said, it was thought that he gained the contacts and reputation in the 60s, uh, building those relationships in the narco world. His uh, his empire lasted almost two decades of, uh, you know, just absolute dominance of the cocaine production and trafficking world. Uh, Suarez's wife, Ada, uh, she recounted in detail, like very, 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 very great detail in this book, actually. Uh, she recounted how that uh, Fidel Castro and Raul Castro contacted Suarez and Escobar in uh, 1983 and invited them to Cuba. They were like, yo, come through. We want to talk to you, have some party, you know, we're going to have drinks, you know, good times, you know, cook some good food. Little Cuban barbecue, some good music. We'll get down. We'll have fun. So upon visiting the island nation, Castro had a plan. He was like, yo, I got an idea, guys. You two dudes got a stranglehold on the drug world. So let's do some work. I think we should just use all this dope to, you know, fuck up the Yankees or, you know, the U.S. And Castro was like, I need you guys to flood the U.S. and I'll help you. This is how I help. I will charge you, you know, a couple million dollars a day. In exchange, I'll give you coverage for your cocaine traffic. I will let you use all my airports for, you know, refueling your planes I'll let you use my coastline to, you know, if you have boats or anything, anything you need, I got you, bro. You just let me know what you need, and I'll help you out. All you got to do is fucking pay me and also ruin the United States. <laughs> that was that was Castro's plan. He really he he really hated the U.S., and uh, he really wanted to fuck them up, so he, he partnered up with these dudes to flood the states, and... It, worked really well <laughs> and it's still working like the effects are still seen today we are still one of the main consumers of cocaine in the world to this day hasn't changed much um the only thing that's changed is the quality of the product it's gone downhill <laughs> back in those days these guys had great product <laughs> uh you know and then in self-defense against the the dea Suarez did some gangster shit. He was like, all right, since you let me use your bases and your, your, your airports, Fidel, 
I need to establish my own fucking shit. So Suarez then established his own private air force as well as his own private army of 1,500 soldiers and a bunch of fucking Libyan-trained bodyguards. Libyans were, they they had learned a lot of great uh, military tactics. So these guys were, they were very well known in the mercenary, uh, the mercenary world back in those days. So that's why he got those Libyan-trained bodyguards. They were bad motherfuckers. Uh, So he basically had his, you know, an army, uh, he had an air force. He had a coast guard over there in Cuba, and then he had government assistance. So, and with all that, he had O'Klaus teaching them all this other shit that you know German tactics and German wisdom of all this. You know, I'm not going to deny that the German military was not organized and really well trained. So Klaus brought that in. So this was a really fucking well-trained, well-ran army. And it showed because of how he dominated the market. Um, he also, with aid from uh, Argentine military dictatorship, uh, he financed uh, and bankrupted the government. So he could just basically take it over and do what he did with Oh, Luis, that crazy son of a bitch. <laughs> um, so he he got control over everything, basically, really quick. And once 1980 hit, it was just all his. Bolivia was his, basically. He was, at the end of the day, Suarez kind of controlled Bolivia because he controlled its financing, because he took over the, he bankrupted the government so he could finance it. So he was essentially the boss in Brazil. Um, and he definitely used his boss-ass powers. Uh, during the 80s, unfortunately, this is when <laughs> friendships sometimes don't last forever. <laughs> uh, Suarez uh, kind of started not liking too much of Escobar's shit, man. You know, their their friendship and business relationship, it just started deteriorating. And it was mainly because Suarez really, 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 really hated Escobar's murderous, you know, acts and activities. And he he absolutely condemned him because Suarez was one of the type of drug lords that he would only use violence as, you know, the last resort. You know, this guy's going to be a witness. I can't let this motherfucker be a witness, so... You know, you know the rest. That's that's usually how Suarez would would uh, act. It wasn't just, you know, this guy... I think this guy's involved, blow him up. You know, he, he wasn't blowing up politicians. He wasn't doing... He wasn't doing crazy shit like Pablo. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have said that, you know, how Suarez was super anti-violence and would only use it for necessity, like I said. But many also pointed out that, you know, you kind of contradicted that by making Klaus (laughs) in charge of, you know, your security and the initiation and enforcement of violent acts, basically. So, you know, while Suarez condemned shit, Klaus didn't condemn shit 
So that nigga was killing a bunch of motherfuckers in the name of the corporation. And I'm sure Suarez knew about some of them and was like, oh, we'll let that slide. But I'm sure, you know, he probably he probably didn't like all of them. And he, he probably, you know, gave Klaus an old talking to. But Klaus, at the end of the day, was like, nigga, I got your business running perfect. Shut the fuck up and just let me keep doing my thing. And he let him keep doing his thing. And uh, he did his thing well for the business. Uh, then, in 1981, um, I'd like to point out, it was a rumor that in 1981, when this happened, uh, Pablo had involvement in this little soiree that happened. Uh, in 1981, Suarez's uh, favorite son, Robert Robbie Levy, was arrested in Switzerland and was extradited to the United States. People said that Pablo either tipped him off or had someone tip him off or, you know, so he had involvement in it, basically. Uh, and they say that, one, because their relationship fell apart so they were like, you know what? Maybe he was a little, he was a little pissed off that their business relationship fell off and he lost a good connect. That's a very, very, very likely possibility because that shit happens all the time. But then again, I'm sure he had the watchful eye of a lot of motherfuckers on him. So it's not a out of the realm of possibility that the U.S. DEA just didn't fucking, you know, find them by using their old good old investigative tactics. But, uh, yeah, he definitely, he definitely uh, could have had involvement in that just because, like I said, dude was not a nice guy. I think he would have just killed him personally and not got him arrested because that's not how Pablo works, man. Pablo don't snitch. <laughs> Kills niggas. Um... And so after Robbie was, you know, extradited to the States, it was all bad for uh, my man Suarez. He was worried. He was like, damn, my little man's going to get fucking put away. I can't let that happen. So he then wrote a letter to Mr. Ronald Reagan and said, hey, look, Reagan, check this out. Pete Gang, this is what I'll do. You give me and my son amnesty how about that you just help us out and we'll pay off Bolivia's foreign debt all 3.8 billion dollars of that debt I'll pay it off right now boom done just you know help me out of course Reagan was like man shut the fuck up <laughs> Reagan could not oblige because at the time you know the drug war was kind of raging at the time so Reagan probably couldn't do a lot of, you know, deals with the king of cocaine. <laughs> Wouldn't look too good on Mr. Reagan's track record, even though he's a bitch-ass motherfucker that did plenty of dirt. Uh, but then, you know, Robbie went to trial, and he was acquitted. Ha-ha. <laughs> Boom. I didn't even need you, Reagan. You bitch. We out. So he was acquitted of all his charges, 
And then Robbie was like, I, right, I'm coming back to Bolivia. <laughs> and was like, yeah, I'm gonna come stay with you pops. Uh, so he moved back to Bolivia. Uh, unfortunately he was, you know, later killed just, uh, a little time after his father was, uh, put in prison. He got killed in a gunfight. Yeah, man. Kid came out and just to keep wiling out. Uh, yeah, he got killed in a gunfight with, uh, Bolivian officials and, uh, backed by U.S. officials. Because uh, of his involvement in an attack of a DEA agent's house, which is a no-no, you don't you don't attack the government. That was like one of the no-nos. The Mexican cartel knows that. <laughs> you do not fuck with DEA. Um, no, he didn't kill any DEA agents. That that uh that would have been would have been bad for him. His whole family would have died then. Uh, but yeah, they they raided his house. He ended up getting shot. But he also ended up killing uh, a few people that raided his house. So, I mean, the guy went out in a blaze of glory like the gangsters like to. Um, Many people believe that it was after his son's arrest and trial. That was kind of the beginning of Suarez's downfall. Uh, Many people saw this as, you know, a weak moment for him. You know, he's he's begging a fucking president, you know, come on, man, help me. And people are like, man, that's kind of weak, bro. You're supposed to be a gangster. You're supposed to be killing niggas. Like, you, you begging this bitch, Reagan? It was very unacceptable in uh, the old narco world. So a lot of people were like, that, not a good look. We can't have that in the you know in the corporation we're supposed to be the the big boys we're supposed to be the leaders uh and then when the colombians wanted to pay a cheaper price then uh what suarez was you know charging the tensions grew more uh and this isn't pablo anymore this is other colombians in in the uh the narco world Ooh, these fucking mushroom yawns guys I can feel it. <laughs> I can definitely feel them. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> they do give you the giggles, too. Uh, with the Colombians wanting to pay that cheaper price, you know, of course, they're going to try to seek out other sources. But Suarez was the best source at the time. And that's when the betrayal starts. That's when some backstabbing shit happens. Uh, Here comes Jorge Roca Suarez. And yeah, he has the same name because he was his nephew. So Jorge started as one of Suarez's lieutenants. And... He was apparently a great lieutenant. He uh, he ran the business very well. He his section of the business very well. He uh, was extremely profitable, but he also wanted to you know be his own boss, and he also wanted to make more money. So he started plotting against his uncle, and plot he did, and it was a it was a smart plot. Unbeknownst to O Suarez, 
Jorge went to the Colombians and he agreed to that cheaper price. Uh, at the time, uh, Suarez was giving the Colombians a cocaine paste. Basically, the paste is what you process and make into the powder. Um, it's like the step before, you know, it gets packaged and everything. Uh, at the time, he was selling that to the Colombians for 14000 But the Colombians were like, man, we want to buy it for nine. We're We're pushing a shit ton of fucking product. We should get it a little cheaper. We're pushing more than anyone. Like, hook us up. Suarez was like, nah, 14000 nigga. <laughs> I don't negotiate. <laughs> the price is the price. Um, and by the way, that is cheap. <laughs> I'm not saying I fucking deal in the cocaine game, but I know what cocaine goes for. And at 9,000 for the paste, the paste is going to produce a good amount of powder. And at a kilo, you know, they were selling it pure. But once you get it here, you know, they were selling it here in the States for 15,000. So you get pure cocaine here for 15,000 and then you step on that shit a little bit. You're talking fucking whew, a lot of pro- you're, you're making one kilo into three kilos like that. Boom. Just like that. Uh, some guys, you know, don't step on it as much. Make it two kilos. But still, that's a lot of fucking money. <laughs> and now you see why the profit margins are so high because that. But anyways, I digress. Uh, don't do drugs. Don't sell drugs, kids. Um, <laughs> I know that sounds lucrative, but trust me the uh the time the the time for crime you know breakdown of that i don't know if it's worth it i really don't know if it's worth it um so i digressed uh george began skimming product basically from his uncle and he was also lying to his uncle about deals saying that he was dealing with other people but he was really selling it to the colombians at the discounted rate so what he would do, he would skim some products, and his uncle also like gave him a warehouse of just product and was like, "You're responsible for this." So he would just you know take a little bit off the top for himself, put that to the side, and then say to his uncle, "Hey, unk, I'm gonna do this deal with this motherfucker." Boom, boom, boom. But he's really going to do do a deal with the Colombians. So he takes X amount. You know, they want a thousand kilos. He would take the thousand kilos and then he would take the little bit that he'd been skimming and, you know, the 500 of the other thousand kilos that he'd skimmed, put it on top, charge them the price that they wanted. And he's still profiting heavily because of all the the free shit he has. Uh, and so but basically what that did was it just, you know, made Suarez start seeing these crippling losses, you know, due to his, you know, his fleet of planes, homes, properties and other debts. You know, he's seeing you know not as much money coming in, but he still has all this money going out. So that was not a good look. And a lot of people in the corporation began to take notice of that. 
And, you know, the corporation, it, it had its power structure. And while Suarez was at the top of said power structure, there's always there's always a, you know, a point where somebody's going to be like, I can be that guy. And that was that moment when they started to see the weakness, the, the loss in money. They just were like, all right, this this ain't working. And, you know, they they saw the power structure, you know, change. So they were like, you know what? Let's let's see what we can move on. And George saw that opportunity or Jorge, excuse me, Jorge, George, whatever you want to call him. Uh, he saw that opportunity and he jumped on that shit. And in very, very short time, George basically took control of the organization and Suarez lost all control and power. Um, now, he didn't get like booted out of the organization just like, man, get the fuck out of here, you bum. That's not how they work. Basically, they just kind of like just gave him less and less power over time until they just kind of like pushed him out to go do whatever the fuck he was going to go do. Um, and let, you know, George Jorge take over because, you know, he was, he was actually moving more product because of the deal he did with the Colombians. And because even though he was selling it a little cheaper because he was moving more in less time, he was making more profits. So the, the, you know, the corporation loved him. Because at the end of the day, a corporation wants to do what? Make a fuck ton of money. So, you know, George was the guy. Uh, because of his loss in control and power, you know, the government had no reason to protect him anymore. They were like, mm, you're not anybody. So, fuck him. They were like, y'all, he's not protected anymore. They told the authorities, you are free to capture that dude. Do whatever you want to do to him. He's no longer, you know, our boss and that's what the cops wanted to do but as you remember I told you about that you know all that philanthropy that dad was doing that shit came back to help him a lot because you know he was beloved he was he was the Robin Hood so it, it wasn't easy to find him that was not an easy task he's a you know he's a drug lord in an area with a lot of jungles and people love him. So, you know, he's got a lot of money. Not a lot anymore, but, you know, he still had a good amount of money. He's a fucking drug lord. And, you know, gives him a lot more chances or places to hide. And hide he did. Uh, it took them about two and a half years to actually track him down. And after diligent police work, a.k.a. snitches, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he basically got rolled on by a few people. Fucking snitches. <laughs> and then uh, July 20th, 1988, Suarez was arrested by the pol uh, by the Bolivian National Police at his hacienda. And it was a sick hacienda, apparently. Like, the dude had, like, all kinds of shit in there. And he ended up keeping that hacienda, actually, and, retiring and dying in it but uh you know even after you know he was you know fallen fallen from power and wasn't really involved in the dope game anymore 
more than one and a half tons of cocaine was found in the house. <laughs> Dude was still having major dope in that motherfucker. So he was just kind of like pushing shit outside of the, the corporation and just trying to make a little buck. You know, you know everyone's, you know, everyone's scratching to survive. And he was just trying to, you know, make a little extra money, keep his family afloat. Damn, y'all. Haters. But that cocaine was his ultimate downfall because that's what he ended up being charged with was cocaine trafficking because of that large amount of cocaine he had. And uh, he was sentenced to 15 years in the San Pedro prison by, uh, for drug trafficking and conspiracy to commit drug trafficking. But he only ended up serving seven years. So, I mean, for all the dirt he did and all the money that motherfucker made, seven years ain't that bad. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how San Pedro prison is, but uh, if it's like most prisons, if you got a little, you know, reputation like he had, money, yeah, prison probably wasn't terrible for him <laughs> but uh who knows i don't know it didn't really talk about his time in prison but i'm sure it wasn't that bad uh he was released after seven years mainly because of uh, uh due to you know declining health and he was like a model prisoner Do was what you want to have as a prisoner in your prison uh very uh he, he says showed a lot of leadership i'm sure he did <laughs> seeing how he led a uh, cartel <laughs> um he also showed a lot of uh, mentorship towards younger prisoners and he also converted to a lot of you know religious faith and followings while in there and he only preferred to be photographed next to images of jesus christ <laughs> Because he said that he wanted the Lord with him at all times. Uh, fucking idiot. <laughs> um, Jesus. Fucking dumbass. God ain't gonna say you, nigga, man. You going to hell. <laughs> you had so much fucking blood on your hands. Uh, you know, Suarez had lost most of his fortune by then. It, it kind of sucked. By the time he got out of prison... He pretty much was broke, you know. It was it was a it was a hard time for him at the you know after prison. He didn't have a lot, but you know he had something, and he still had that hacienda that I told you about, and you know that's basically what he did after he released got released from prison. He just chilled at his hacienda and managed that, and you know lived the chill retired life of a retired drug lord. <laughs> you know how they do, you know, just chilling on haciendas, you know, managing a hacienda, having guests. Um, I wonder if his guests knew. <laughs> like, <laughs> I wonder if like motherfucker vacationing from the states, <laughs> just going. I'm going to visit this beautiful hacienda, and then they fucking find out. Holy shit! I stayed at motherfucking Roberto Suarez's hacienda. Do you know who that nigga is? <laughs> You seen Scarface? 
Um, but yeah, that dude, I mean, if you're going to die, I mean, that's probably the way to go. Chill life. After doing what he did, that's definitely the way to go. Because most of those guys either get assassinated, prison, fucking killed by their best friend, something. It's fucked up usually how they go. So this guy definitely ended his life on the high note. And uh, I'm sure he fucking, he wasn't as broke as, you know, they say. He probably had some cash buried as most drug lords did. There's probably still cash out in the Bolivian forest. Speaking of, let me book this trip to Bolivia real quick. Give me a second, guys. Uh. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, that's definitely how I would want to go out, man. Drug lord or not, you know, just living the chill life. You know, it's kind of working a little bit, but mostly chilling. Smoke, smoke weed, have a bunch of dogs. That's 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 the way to go. Uh, and then you know, four years after uh, his release, in July twentieth, two thousand, Suarez would get his final heart attack. And he would succumb to it. And he would die at his hacienda in Santa Cruz, Bolivia. Uh, Weeks before his death, he did a TV interview. And he actually expressed a lot of remorse for his crimes. Um, I I just listened to just like a, there's only like a snippet that you can find of the actual interview. You can't find the whole interview. But, you know, in in the snippet, you could see like, it's it seemed very genuine. He seemed to, you know, express true remorse and contrition, you know, and I I believed it. And you know, sometimes you, it takes time to realize how fucking shitty of a person you are. And it took him a little time, but he realized it. Prison probably opened his eyes to it a little more. Back, getting backstabbed by his own fucking nephew definitely probably helped help uh realize how that shit the crime world ain't you know it ain't where it's at and he was also quoted stating the worst mistake i ever made in my life was to have gotten involved with cocaine trafficking and not taking over my family's business which is fucking true bro you fucking came up from a family of rich people and prominence you idiot <laughs> why would you damn I, I get that yeah you probably you made made way more money than you would have doing the family business fuck ton more money but you probably would have lived a less stressful and guilt-free life while doing so so you know yeah you're fucking dumb <laughs> Goddamn idiot. All you had to do was just say, Mom, Dad, show me the way. I'll do this business. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, guys, that's uh, the story of the legendary, very little-known king of cocaine, Roberto Suarez Gomez. Uh, you know, I didn't add a lot of the stuff because it was either opinion-based info from, you know, DEA or you know, other, you know, other traffickers. Uh, but, you know, if you want to read up on a lot of this guy, I suggest you read uh, his ex-wife's 
uh, Ada Levy's book. Uh, she published, she wrote and published it back in, I think it was like 2015, um, entitled The King of Cocaine, My Life with Roberto Suarez and the Birth of the First Narco State. It's a fucking great read. Uh, I got a lot of the info in this episode from there. Uh, and if you want to, you know, see some of the crazy stories that his ex-wife had of him, definitely go look at that book because there are some wild stories. I didn't put them in here just because, you know, there's that just that they're stories, you know, um, nothing confirmed. And when somebody's trying to sell a book, sometimes, you know, they'll add some stuff that's very enticing. But everything that I've talked about in this was, you know, either confirmed by government officials or law enforcement or confirmed by a multitude of people. Um, so that's why I talked about it in this episode. Um, but yeah, definitely, if this episode intrigued you in any way, you're, you're more interested, go get that book immediately. It's a fucking great read. It's not super long. It's under 300 pages, so you can get through it in a few days. No problem. Um, yeah, and I'm going to go ahead and get out of here because the mushrooms are starting to kick in big time and the letters are moving <laughs> and uh, the focus is uh, diminishing a little bit. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> but we can balance that out. Uh, little known trick of mine. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to work for you guys. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's uh, going to help me a little bit. But uh, yeah, make sure you tune in next week, guys. Um, you know, next week's episode is it's going to be a it's going to be a serious one. I'm not probably not going to do shrooms for this one. Uh, uh, I'll probably definitely have a joint or two for this one just because of what I'm talking about. It can kind of be a little stressful. It can uh, it can be a little uh, a little deep, uh, but I definitely suggest that you tune in, and I'll be talking about police and their relationship and history with the black community. This one's uh, like I said, gonna be a real deep one, gonna be a real serious one. Uh, I, I'm, I'm reaching out to a few guys. Hopefully I can get one of them. Uh, one of them is a former cop. So that's why I really want to get this guy on because he's a former cop and I really want, uh, to hear his perspective and just to, just to pick his brain about a few things. Uh, and there's going to be some triggering things in this. So, you know, I'm just going to warn you there, but I promise you it's going to be filled with you know, plenty of great information and points that you can take from it. Uh, you know, also remember to click that follow button, uh, share this with your friends, like the episode, you know, please, you know, please leave a review guys. You know, I, I don't have thin skin, so be as critical as you want to be or complimentary as you want to be. You know, I, I take compliments too. <laughs> you know, you could tell me I'm the best fucking guy you've ever listened to. I'm not, you know, not going to. I'm not going to delete that comment. 
Um, and, you know, once again, guys, you know, I appreciate all y'all just taking the time out of your days just to listen to me rant and talk about stuff that uh, you might be interested or you might not even be interested in. But hopefully I can capture your interest and get you to stay tuned and listen and learn some new information and shit. Uh, as I said, stay tuned for merch announcements and make sure you tune in Friday for Smoke Sports Sessions with my boys, uh, Fritz. And this week, I'll have my homeboy, Anthony Squilini, joining me for the football section of the the Took session. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be a really good one because we finally get to talk a lot of football. And it was some good football games. I'm not going to talk about the Eagles. I'm probably going to skip anything about the Eagles. Um, I'm very mad about what happened yesterday. Some bullshit. Uh, yeah, anyways, till Friday, tokers. Don't drink and drive. Smoke and fly. And I don't mean literally fucking like go fly a plane, you dumbasses. That was like a, you know figure of speech fly because you're high but anyways enjoy your day guys make sure you listen to this twice (laughs) holla